you believe it took a pandemic for us to like hang out again? Um, I can't believe it took a pandemic. Also, I'm so excited to talk to you because you are just such an interesting person to me. Um, thank you. Yeah, you just do a million things. And I feel like I have followed you for a long time because you've always had very interesting opinions about all kinds of stuff. And you're just a very insightful person. Um, and I've watched you kind of go through all of these struggles and overcome it. Like I'm so team Sierra now. I've like stalked you for almost 10 years, I feel like. And I'm like, yeah, it's got to be at least, at least 10 years. Yeah. Maybe even more. Um, I don't really know where to start. Why don't you tell me what, who you are and what you do? (laughs) Uh, well, I'm Sierra. I, and mainly a singer songwriter and holistic vocal coach and music has been like the main thread throughout my life and it's been my most invested career and skill um but I'm also a writer a speaker an accidental activist I kind of inherited activism my grandfather was a member of the Black Panther Party And the reason he even came to Canada was because there was an assassination attempt against him, like back in Cali. The CIA tried to assassinate him. I guess he was like driving a bus or something and they got tipped off that like they were going to blow up the bus. The bus was like going to go somewhere and it had like, it was like a community, like, you know, you get on the bus and you're going to an event or thing. So they got tipped off and he didn't drive the bus and no one went on the bus and the bus blew up. So it was a Black Panther bus that the CIA was going to blow up. They blew it up, but I don't think anybody died. At least my grandfather didn't die. What year would this have been? Oh, it had to have been in like the early 70s, like 70, 71, maybe even 69. I don't know. It's interesting. When those family stories get passed along, no one's ever really like, it's so in September of 1969. Grandpa Carter was, you know, like, yeah. I don't really know. I would have to ask, but it was long enough ago. And he was like a real crazy guy, but he was also a musician too. Like, he used to play with Carlos Santana and like Van Morrison. It was just this wild, like, musical activism San Francisco time, right? Yeah. So when that happened, that really spooked out his parents. And so my great grandma sent him up here to live with her sister. And he's just been here ever since. Um, and obviously, like, with that kind of a political and musical consciousness, like, that's how he raised my mom. And, you know, she's gotten into, like, her own brand of activism. And that's just kind of, like, how they raised me. So I, I didn't I didn't have to be like that. I could have just, like, minded my own business and just, like, been about, you know – where the money resides and just done that. But I just, I just have such a big mouth. And so, so yeah, I guess that's how I I got into things. Although I would say like, I I don't actively really do it now. I got like super burnt out in my early twenties and it was really traumatic. And I was also dealing with like so much just like personal garbage and it was just way too much to try and save the world and like save myself. So I, I don't do it very often nowadays, but very occasionally I'll get asked to do something really random. Like last June when I was the keynote speaker at the BLM rally here in Edmonton, 
like I think they asked me like the morning before. And so then in a period of 24 hours, I'm speaking in front of 15,000 people. But that's not like the norm for me. Like my everyday life is very like, you know, like I teach singing. Yeah. Well, you have an interesting, I feel like your, your intention is to heal others from the energy I get from you and your social media presence and even your activism is to heal your community and others. That's the big thing. Um, and I listened to some of your music. Oh, geez. Yeah. And you like you, I mean, the last album you released or EP is from 2014. Yeah. And so that would have represented the garbage (laughs) of your early twenties. Oh yeah. And like, not even the worst of it. I think that was just like, if life was a movie, that was the part where like the ominous strings was coming in, you know, like things were just starting to get scary. Like the meme when Ralph Wiggins is in the back of the bus and he's like, I'm in trouble. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was your, but that wasn't your album. I'm not saying that. But no, yeah. <laughs> but in like the, in like the arc of life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's where I was. What sounds influenced you musically and what do you listen to? What did you listen to growing up? You know, what, because does country music influence you being in Alberta? Do you work with country producers? Like soul, you know, you kind of have a jazz sound to you. You have a soul sound to you. Um, and then my mom, weirdly, I was like, mom, listen to this. She's like, it's like country. I'm like, no, it's not. Well, you know what? That's very interesting. Oh, mom that's so sweet okay so my family has always kind of gone back and forth for about the last like 110 years between Canada and the U.S. Um, there is a settlement called Amber Valley in northern Alberta and it's actually like the northernmost black settlement I'm in so excited for you to talk about this because I had no idea about this until your social media I know I never knows. learned about this in school like I nobody knows. It's it's the like the secret history of the Black One Thousand. So uh, I guess in nineteen must have been like around nineteen ten. My great great grandmother and grandfather um, they came with like a whole bunch of other families on a train from Oklahoma and Alabama straight through to Canada and then all the way up. They got off in Edmonton and then about a couple hundred kilometers north they settled in Amber Valley and. Um, the like political bodies of the day, the provincial and even the federal government got really spooked by all this, like these like sun black people on the prairies, right? Because they were not the ideal, uh, immigrant, right? They were, they were advertising in the Southern U S that they wanted people to come and farm in this land or whatever, but they didn't expect there's going to get a bunch of black people. Right. And they were like, well, whatever, we're self-sufficient. We're hardworking. We yeah. can we're not afraid of the cold. I don't think they really knew what cold was having lived an entire life in Oklahoma, but so they came and about by 1911, uh, Wilfrid Laurier had passed an order in council banning black immigration for decades. And you didn't see black people coming to Canada again until decades and decades and decades later. And they were coming from the Caribbean because that's a Commonwealth country and you can't really you know, you, you got to play nice when you're all under the same queen. Yeah. So it like kibosh immigration for decades. Yeah. We're the only ones that made it through. Now, we were just like country people. 
you know, and like country music in and of itself is rooted in like the blues. It's rooted in African like American roots. Right, right. Irish it's rooted immigrant. in like yeah. field haulers. It's it's very like rootsy black, like my mom used to always say, like Carolina chocolate drops. We're country bumpkin people. Yeah. And so I guess in the early 2000s, I guess we kind of decided, well, like, hey, this is pretty cool. Let's let's keep this musical heritage going. And so that's how I really cut my teeth musically. I was like an 11-year-old girl, like a tiny child at like the end of this group. And everyone else in the group is either my older cousin or my auntie or my uncle. My dad's doing sound. My mom is leading the group. Like it, this is a family affair. Like a family band. Is a family band. <laughs> it's a country gospel family band. So, yeah, I did that until I was about 17. And then at that point, that's when I went to music school. And then I really started to seriously, like, study jazz. And, I mean, there's so many different styles of music that I was exposed to growing up. Like, of course, like, I was really into, like, R&B and soul. But I was also a cheerleader in high school. So I was, like, obsessed with Britney Spears and Lady Gaga. But, like, I also really liked, like, indie rock stuff. Like Indie rock stuff was huge also when we were in high school. Especially in Edmonton, there was all yes. those shows, and like you weren't cool. Yes. At yes. Do you think everyone can sing? The idea of like people being tone deaf is exceedingly rare. Mm-hmm. Like it's an actual condition. I think that most people are born with the capacity to sing, but I think it can be disciplined out of a child very quickly. Um, and I, I think anyone can find their voice. That's kind of my my gig. Um, but I think that if we encouraged more children to be vocal and to be able to like sing without judgment and like expectations and standards, I think a lot more people would sing. It's about finding and expressing your literal voice, but also your soul's voice. And singing is something that is very vulnerable because you are your instrument. You are literally sharing what is inside your body, you know, like, and on a physical, mental, energetic, emotional level, that requires a willingness to be open to like channel a very raw, unvarnished aspect of yourself. And that is very scary for a lot of people. Luckily, I'm just a little bit crazy. So I like that. You're going to school. How far are you along in your therapy stuff? Right now, I'm finishing a degree in child and youth care. I have to do a practicum over the summer, but I've only got a few months left of undergrad. But I want to do, I'm pretty sure I'm going to do a master's in social work once I'm done with this because I want to be able to have my own private practice as a therapist. It's going to do counseling, but I think, I think I'm a little more of a social work person. I wanted to ask you if you... If somebody's listening to this that feels extremely hopeless, which I think there are a lot of people that don't think people, um, other people understand how, you know, how deep that hole can get and dark that hole can get inside of ourselves. What would you say to them? Oh, man. Honestly, I would start off with like, sweetie, I get it. Like, if you are just going from the perspective of labels, like I have all the labels against me, all the stats were against me. You know, the intergenerational trauma, the like being a gender, a sexual minority, a racial minority, like all of that stuff, it was against me. And 
I experienced so much trauma just based on my social location and being being a black woman in Edmonton. Yes, being being black, being bisexual, growing up poor, you know, like having tons and tons and tons of intergenerational trauma in my family. And so those years, I think it took me about five years. And those five years were so, so dark. And I think the thing that hurt the most was I didn't have a community, you know, like I didn't have consistent like family relationships or friendships or, you know, stable, healthy relationships. I didn't know how to have healthy relationships. So relationships were just like replaying these cycles of trauma and like re-traumatizing me. Right. And I think that the biggest things that made the difference were finding my people, you know, and in order to find your people, you have to let people know about your pain. People can't help you. They can't respond to you if they don't know that you're hurting. I know that's scary because there's that stigma behind, oh, like she's crazy. She's going through this. She's going through that. But I don't really think that we're in the same place when it comes to that anymore. I think a lot of people who maybe were strangers to what I call soul wounding or what other people would call mental illness, I think that they have had a taste of it in the last year. Um, I hope at least that there's greater understanding or greater empathy. You have to let people know. You have to name your pain. If you're silent when you're hurting and you don't tell anyone that you're hurting, they'll kill you and and they'll make you say that you enjoyed it because they won't know. You know what? You'll never be able to tell your story. They'll say that you enjoyed it. So you have to you have to name your pain and call in your people, the people that can hold space for you. And then at that point, you have to get really brave and you have to go into like the darkest, most uncomfortable places in your heart and in your mind. And you have to expose them to the light. That's the only way to heal. You have to expose them. You have to see them. You have to accept them and find a way. I don't like the word forgiveness because I feel like it's very loaded, but you just have to find a way to embrace yourself and your flaws and your story and your failures and all of the things that have left you feeling so hurt and broken and understand that in this moment, even though it feels so intense and you can't see your way out and the past and the present and the future are just like swirled up into this one like horrible ball of suffering, everything, nothing is permanent. Emotions are ephemeral. They, they change how you're feeling right now, how you might be feeling throughout these these years is not going to be how you're going to feel when you get to the other side of it. And the wisdom and the resilience and the strength that you will have when you're on the other side of it, I get that feeling too of like, well, I don't want to be strong. I didn't want to have to learn all this. I don't want to be resilient. I just want to live an easy life. Well, you know, maybe this time around the sun, in this lifetime, you weren't meant to not know these things. Maybe there is a greater purpose for your journey and for your your soul's path. And so at that point, it's about being open to the idea of transmuting that suffering. I hated everything that I went through in my 
childhood and in my early 20s. Like I hated the family dysfunction, the estrangement, the abandonment, the homophobia, the racism, the sexism, you know, getting laughed at for my music or other people asking me who wrote my songs. I wrote them, you know, like I hated not being able to pursue opportunities because I didn't have any money and no one that I knew came from any money. Like I, I hated always feeling like I was deficit based and there was something wrong with me. But through the process of overcoming all of those obstacles, I gained such a deep understanding of like myself and my place in the world and other people. And that has really been like the arrow that guides me. I wouldn't be who I am otherwise. So feel coming back here, uh, the rise of the right wing. Yes. And my, I love my parents to death. And my dad is an optimist and he thinks, no, no, we're so far past that. And I'm like, I don't think so. I think that we have um, a serious battle with the, the far right ahead of us in Canada. Yes, I'm not an optimist. I am a woman from a black and indigenous family. So we're I'm, in a very Weimar Republic type era right yeah. now. And who knows if we will rise to the occasion or not. I mean, trying to be an optimist here. The one plus side that I've seen is like I have never seen this many people wake up to the problem in my life. Like last summer was a horrific summer for people of color. I had never seen that many of like my friends and loved ones who are white being like, this is fucked up and like, it's got to stop. And like reading books and educating themselves instead of just like sliding into my DMs and like wanting like black ladies opinion and then like arguing like the devil's advocate like I didn't see any of that I just saw a lot of people like waking up to the problem which is like I mean it's been about a hundred years too late but at least you woke up sleeping beauty so I'm happy about that like I think that's phenomenal at least there's an awareness of the problem why do you think white people why do you think it took this long to wake to wake white people up? Well, Martin Luther King Jr. has never had the highest opinion of the white moderate. Yeah. And I know everyone wants to talk about him like he's some like care bear shooting like love and kumbaya out of his chest, but he was really not that way at all. Yeah. Um, he was not violent, but he was quite radical. Yeah. Um, I think that like I cannot speak for your culture, but I can see what I've observed on the other side. And I think that there is a strong, strong investment in not peace necessarily, because I think to have peace, you'd have to have equality, but just it's like, like feeling good about ourselves. So we ignore the problem. Yeah, it's just yeah. like this ominous tranquility, you know? Everybody get along. Everybody be nice. You know, I think that's a very Canadian thing. So if you say the Canadian nice. experience of as a person of color is ominous tranquility? At times. I want you to get credit for that. You need to coin that. That's like... <laughs> conversely like you know when I talk to my cousins that live in the U.S. I'm like you know maybe you should come up here because the ominous tranquility is a preferable at times experience to active hostility you know like sometimes 
like for example I have a cousin and she's about to have a baby and she's having a little baby boy and she is worried about having a little black boy with her black husband in America like she's scared for the future of this child now I've been talking to her and I was like well you know like it's not great up here but like I don't think you'd have to worry quite as much if you came up here I don't want to make it seem like it's perfect but like you know maybe we should talk about this a little bit more right so that's kind of why I I don't know we learned about Amber Valley in school to be honest I was thinking this last night like why didn't I know about Amber Valley well then they have to teach me that Wilfred Laurier wouldn't let any black people in and and then I realized that I my dumb ass thought that like black people just didn't want to come here like like (laughs) you know I feel stupid now I'm glad I learned about it and I'm excited to teach other people about it but like the fact that I in school like they didn't teach us that so they didn't have to tell us that Canada wouldn't let black people in I think is why so we can live in our ominous tranquility as you said absolutely and I mean my ancestors were choosing between like hell and discomfort Mm -hmm. severe discomfort but discomfort hell right so they chose discomfort but it's not like they were like you know they didn't have two great choices to begin with and things have gotten better and like would I personally relocate to the states Mm, I don't know you'd have to put a really good incentive package together for make me to make me want to do that I don't know if I would but at the same time like I don't know. There are just so many problems. My ancestors were in a tough spot. What is interesting about what you have just said is my great-grandmother did write a textbook in the 80s. Um, Yeah, in Alberta, my great-grandmother and my auntie. And it's so funny. This textbook, it's called, uh, I think it's called The Window of Our Memories. The Window of Our Memories. Yeah. And then I think she wrote another book too. I think it might have just been called The Black Canadians. It's so funny. One of my social teachers in junior high had like a copy of it. And on the cover of the book is, like, my mom and my aunt and, like, two of, like, my uncles in, like, peak 1980s, like, Jerry Curl, big puppy, like, Princess Diana-style sweaters. And they're all, like, on the cover. So I just, like, pulled this book out of the shelf and I was like, hello, mom? So, like, there actually were textbooks written. It just didn't. So why didn't I, why didn't I learn about it? I don't know, Skye. It's can't. It's, it's not in the Alberta curriculum. No, it's not. It's got to be in the Alberta curriculum. Well, they didn't. They wanted the UCP wanted to take residential schools out of the curriculum like a few months ago. What can I? What can I say? I don't know. But I we know, do. Do you like my? Did you notice my mug? Ah. Uh, <laughs> do you feel like the right wings will call it identity politics, and um, people call it intersectionality? Mm-hmm. And people's personal identity affects the way that they view themselves. And there's a lot of emphasis on, which might not have been intersectionality's um, point in the beginning, Mm -hmm. um, but now it dictates a lot of our conversations. Right. And I I was wondering how you feel about that whole concept and how it defines you or if it does. 
Well, intersectionality is a theory that was created by a black feminist scholar named Kimberly Crenshaw. And if you read her actual like original paper from the 90s about intersectionality, really what it is, is it's just saying that like we all have different experiences based on our social location um, in the society which is structured in this specific hierarchical dominant way. And so if you want to like understand different types of people or help other types of people. And, you know, I'm kind of thinking like in the realm of like social work or Mm -hmm. critical race theory or that kind of thing, political science, you have to think about the different parts of them that make them them and how that's going to give them a different perspective. And this is a way to help you understand their perspective. That's kind of what it was. And so like, yes, I do see this whole thing with like the quote unquote woke left where it's like, well, I'm a this, that, X, Y, Z, A, B, C, D, H, I, G. And therefore you can't tell me nothing. And I don't think that is exactly the solution either. In my life, hearing constantly all the time that like, you know, like, for example, black women are Mm -hmm. like the least likely to get married or like the most undesirable group in relationships or like the poorest or like the worst at this. And we have the highest this and it's always a bad thing and the lowest this and it's always a good thing. Like that deficit based narrative is, it's very disturbing. Like it's hard to see yourself as an individual when you're constantly bombarded with negative messaging, horrible messaging about who you are. And so then to take even that to the extreme, then we've got this other side where people are like, well, I just, I'm not like OJ Simpson. I'm not black. I'm OJ. No, you black. And you were black when it was convenient for you. But, you know, like, I don't think I'm not living in a post-racial world either. Like, I'm very aware because of my life experience. Like, I've been able to connect my social location to different things that I experience in different outcomes. Right? And, like, I understand how culture and, like, race and gender and whatever have affected my life. But I still have to be me. You know? Like, I'm still Sierra underneath all of that stuff. And so sometimes I think, like, it can be a little much. Like... Yeah, I don't know. What's funny to me is when um, well-intentioned white ladies start yelling at me on Instagram because I'll be like, whoa, like, it's okay. Like, we don't have to be like, all white people are the devil, right? Just to congratulate this one black lady. And then they'll get mad at me and I'll be like, I want you to just look at my profile picture. And then they apologize. I'm like, well, you don't really have to apologize. You just, I just need you to calm down. So, like, things can get, again, they can get carried away to the extreme here. I, like, intersectionality is a very, very valid lens in which to critically think about the world. But, you know, we're talking about groups of people. And inside those groups of people, people are still people. You know, they're still who they are. And I don't want to forget about that either. You seem to have such a good boundary um, with the pain of what your people have been through and the pain that you take on your heart. Mm -hmm. Would I be right in saying that? Yes. It was hard one, but I've worked very intentionally on that because I care a lot, like a lot, a lot. I'm at this point in my life, I'm particularly interested in like ways of healing black families Um, And, like, the whole theory of, like, post-traumatic slave syndrome for diasporic descendants of slavery. 
And so like, yeah, like I see it in families, in my own family all the time. It's very painful. I, I feel a lot of grief at times. But I guess I just am humble enough to know that it is so much bigger than me. And there's really only so much I can do. And now that I think about this out loud, I think that my time working in child welfare actually really kind of gave me this perspective. Because when I was working in the foster system, every single day, something significantly upsetting would happen and I would be out of control of it every single day. And some of the things I saw, I mean, the foster system is overwhelmingly full of Indigenous children. Number two population is Black children in the U.S. Black children, I think, make like an astonishing number. In, of in Edmonton, the second, in, in Edmonton, it's the second is yeah. Black children? Yeah. Even though such a tiny population. Um, and I was working um, at an agency where like, that was a lot of our clientele and it was very painful because I saw a lot of children that like, you know, looked like me as a kid, looked mm -hmm. like my cousin as a kid, had the same story as someone I knew and cared mm -hmm. about. And it was very, very painful. Um, I ended up actually writing a paper about it that I've submitted for publication. I think it'll come out next year. Um, but I think through that process, I learned how to put things down and not try and be the savior of it all. I can only really do a little bit. And I also think that there is something to be said for me choosing to live a good life when everyone who came before me may not necessarily have had that choice. So that's my own little way of restoring things. I think my ancestors have sacrificed so much so I can live a good life, so I can actualize my dreams. I think about all the women who came before me who were never able to get a master's degree, have a music career, start their own business, like have their own home with their two bad behaved cats. Like so many women didn't get that chance. Yeah. So, you know, that there's something to be said for that too. As much as like I care very much about elevating my people and supporting my people and I'm I'm always the first person to root for black people but i know that like i i am no savior hmm. which know, is like, ironic because i have a song that's like she's gonna save the world but <laughs> well you're gonna save the world but, but, but you know when i wrote that that was before i grew <laughs> before you realize how dark the world was you're like i'm gonna save the world and you're like not gonna save the world she's just gonna stay at home and watch netflix <laughs> okay well, you're gonna save the world how do you hold space for someone else like in a what is holding space for someone else? What does it mean to you? And how do we do it optimally? Okay. Um, I'll answer this and maybe maybe we'll leave it on this note because I realize I have an appointment at two. Um, but how I hold space for people is I kind of, I put aside all of my other stuff, you know, my day, my life, my me, and I focus in on the person and I listen very deeply and very actively. And when they're talking to me, I reflect the content of what they've said and I try and reflect the feeling of what they've said. So if you said to me, I'm feeling really sad today and I don't know why, I could reflect the content and be like, 
you're having a hard time, huh? Or I could reflect the feeling and be like, it sounds like you've got so much on your plate and it's really weighing you down. And so I just empathize. And sometimes I'll ask questions so I can understand them more deeply. I don't try and give advice. I only give advice if they ask me for it. Most of the time, I just let them know that I'm trying to understand. I don't bring myself into it. I think that's sometimes a strategy that some people have for connecting with people. Like if someone's going through a hard time, you tell a story about how you went through that hard time. But if you haven't established that like this time is for you, then it just feels like you're hijacking the conversation. So I just, I think of it as like a container. And in this container of time, this time is me giving empathy and concern and interest and listening and attention to you. And then if you want my opinion on it, maybe I'll give you an opinion. Mm -hmm. But I try not to be prescriptive. I try not to be dogmatic. Most of the time, if you let people talk things out, they'll figure it out themselves. And one final question before you go. Okay. I have to go to a therapy appointment after that. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) Um, If you could tell 20-year-old you, or would you, okay, first of all, would you could opt out and not tell her anything. No, I couldn't do that to her. Okay, so what would you tell her? (laughs) Oh, my God. I'd be like, sweetie. I would just hug her. I would just hug her and hug her and hug her and hug her and hug her. I would just love up on her and hug her and be like, sweetie, it's okay. And I would just tell her that I love her. And I wouldn't tell her what to do because she wouldn't listen anyway because she's me. See, that's what I wonder. I'm like, I would never, I, you can't tell your old, you can't tell your old self anything because obviously you had to learn it firsthand. No. But- and I'm so stubborn. I'd be like, yeah, whatever. No, I would just love up on her. I love that. And if you had to give everybody healing words for this time, what would you tell them? Go sing a song. That's great. (laughs) I love that. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. This was so much fun. I learned so much from you, like legitimate. I've like, I've just learned so much from you. I'm so grateful. And yeah, thanks for coming on. I'm really excited for this one. I feel like people are going to be like, whoa. Oh, I know this. It's been such a blessing. Thank you so much. We should do this again, like in not a like, yeah, like a friendship. Really? Carter, you you don't want to hang out with me? Record is it recording? That a lot of people are going to see and hear. <laughs>